Welcome to FemCon, the podcast series imagining new feminist constitutions for Ireland and Northern Ireland. The reality of US constitutional law now is that it is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. It's a quite a different agreement. For some people, it's a, it's a step back. Welcome to FemCon. I'm Catherine O'Rourke. I'm one of the FemCon project coordinators and I'm a legal academic at Durham Law School. And I'm Marie Denright. I'm also one of the project coordinators and I'm a legal academic working at Birmingham Law School. So in this, our third and last FemCon podcast episode, we're looking at international and comparative experience. We're looking at feminist campaigns elsewhere, where feminists have used constitutions to advance their campaigns, or at least to resist the worst of backlash against feminist campaigns. More specifically, we're going to look at recent experience in the US and recent efforts to draft an entirely new and feminist constitution in Chile. And we found in talking to them really important inspiration and food for thought around how you keep projects of feminist constitutional change going, even in the face of major political and institutional obstacles. And we think that these examples show that some standard or traditional mechanisms for constitutional change, like strategic litigation, going to the courts and asking judges to interpret the constitution, uh, formally revising the constitution through a referendum and so on, that these methods can be some of the biggest obstacles to genuine uh, feminist change. We've also learned from talking to these um, activists and scholars that radical constitutions need defending. There's a lot of work to be done after you get the written constitutional text um, that you want. And I think we've learned that we don't not get feminist constitutions because we don't have enough feminists working hard to imagine alternative legal orders. Um, Institutions in the real world, non-feminist institutions, are important blocks to alternative legal realities. Now we're going to hear from Rachel Rabouche. Rachel's Dean of the Beasley School of Law in Temple University in Philadelphia, and she's one of the US's leading reproductive law scholars. She also happens to be familiar with our own context in Ireland and Northern Ireland, having previously studied here and having been involved in efforts around a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. So as you know, uh, we're a feminist constitutions project um, and we've been motivated really you know, very much by wanting to intervene into the debate here in Ireland and Northern Ireland about constitutional change and, and how to, to make that a more feminist constitutional change. But in this particular episode, we're looking elsewhere for ideas and for inspiration. I have to say, though, for a feminist constitution project looking from abroad at the US, the situation looks pretty bleak. So it makes me wonder, um, are we are we naive? Um, is it time for feminists to give up on constitutions as a site of positive feminist transformation? So I think in the US, the Constitution hasn't done a lot to... I mean, the Constitution has been uh, at the center of important battles and contestations of sex and gender and gender equality. But I I do think that with the recent Dobbs decision, we've seen the limitations of constitutional doctrine in the U.S. in in promoting gender equality or at least a feminist vision 
of constitutional law. And I think the example that the stunning example to my mind is, you know, without getting too in the weeds, the the vision that the majority opinion in Dobbs has, the opinion written by Justice Alito, the, the conception they have of what pregnancy is and how pregnancy works and the experience of pregnancy in the United States. And it's it's really detached from reality, <laughs> put it that way. You know, it's a gift, not a burden. And we have a Pregnancy Discrimination Act and we have unpaid family leave and we have some subsidized maternal care and there's adoption and safe haven laws that allow people to leave infants in designated spots. And really, you know, the conception here is that pregnancy is not... Um, you know, pregnancy is manageable and affordable when it's just, it's not, it's not in the United States. The unpaid medical leave and a discrimination statutory regime that no one really invokes because of retaliation and because of cost and not to mention just the cost of litigation. And, and, and the idea that, you know, that to write an opinion that in part deals with the cost of unplanned pregnancy, and not to one time mention that we have one of the highest maternal morbidity and mortality rates of any uh, similarly positioned country, you know, that there are deserts of maternal care across the country where people cannot receive maternal prenatal care. So, you know, I, I, I hate to talk too long, but you know, that that's one, stri- that that is a that that majority's opinion about what the what what matters in asking the question about what the constitution does and does not say in relationship to pregnancy or terminating a pregnancy when i add to that of just the par- the gratuitous paragraph the dicta really where justice alito just announces that abortion has nothing to do with equality that the equal protection clause though not at issue in the case Still, wouldn't provide constitutional protection for abortion. So, I mean that that there, you know, that that is a that's the court stripping away constitutional arguments uh, from gender, uh, and it's very striking. I'm going to get a little off script here, Rachel, but uh, just listening to you, I suppose I was struck by we have in this project been talking a lot about constitutions, but of course you're talking about the judiciary and those empowered to interpret them. I wonder, I suppose, how meaningful is that distinction mm. to you, you know, in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the, the reality of U.S. constitutional law now is that it is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. And we are going to live potentially with the Supreme Court for a very long time. So until there are five votes to say something differently, then the U.S. Constitution Equal Protection Clause does not relate to abortion. And I think that's the kind of legal realist move of like what judges do and what constitutional law actually means. But to your point, there's certainly something, and certainly scholars and activists, advocates and judges from the time that Roe v. Wade was decided press the point that actually equality as a theory has everything to do with abortion. It has everything to do with women's participation or people's participation in education and public life and employment. But it, I guess I'm, I, I keep, I come back to that, you know, that can be true as a feminist argument, but until the constitution is interpreted in that way, 
the Constitution is not the friend of that argument in the United States. We, this is our sort of comparative learning episode um, in terms of the, the series. And I'm interested, um, given, I suppose, where you, you know, this position that you find yourselves in the US right now, what, if any, value do you see in looking elsewhere, looking comparatively when thinking about feminist constitutional change strategies? So, I, I you know, I think there's there's something really interesting to, to look to Ireland and to think about constitutional amendment as one way in which advocates and those supportive of abortion rights could disentangle political party and religious affiliation from a core question about should the constitution maintain this status quo? And I think that there has been some some movement in the U.S. around those ideas. I've been talking about the U.S. federal constitution, but of course, we have state constitutions that can be interpreted much more broadly, deeply along concepts of equality and autonomy and dignity than the federal constitution. And that's happened. Six states have enjoined abortion bans after Dobbs based on their cons- their, their state constitutional values. So I, I think there's real advantages to thinking comparatively, both in terms of movements, but also in terms of legal arguments. What would a feminist constitution look like to you? What would it contain and what would it prioritize? So for me, it would prioritize the kinds of responsibility for material assistance and financial support, that it would have the kind of thinking around socioeconomic rights and how states can be accountable for ensuring there is progressive realization of those rights, knowing that a constitution is a blunt instrument to think about big spending programs and, you know, public programs there, I think of, for me, a feminist constitution and taking on those material needs would go a long way in, in trying to help ensure that people are getting the support for caregiving, are getting, are making living wages, are, you know, being treated with dignity in the workplace. And, you know, I think, and I, that for me was what first comes to mind, because I think we know that it's a feminist cause to see that it, you know, people who identify as women that bear the brunt of, of that care and shoulder a lot of that responsibility. So I think that, for, that, that pops out for me as what uh, I think a modern constitution that's feminist-minded would include, in addition to you know, being, being explicit about the, the role and salience of gender, gender identity, in interpretation of rights. Great. Thank you. And just maybe to loop back to the start a little bit, um, where we ended up having to talk about the distinction between the Constitution and, and those who are empowered to interpret it. I mean, have you any any thoughts maybe on perhaps those more procedural hmm. or institutional matters? How might we then safeguard our feminist constitution? I, well, that's interesting. So there, I think there are a range of reactions. One is to, you know, the the logistics of the judiciary. Do you have, you know, term limits, for instance, have been suggested for the U.S. Supreme Court. I also think there's something about decentering federal constitutional litigation, thinking about roads through which change can occur um, at the state level under state constitutions. I think it'd be great if the U.S. looked comparatively and took, 
human rights a little bit more seriously or thought about them at all. Um, you know, had interpretive tools that judges and courts were, in, you know, were, were encouraged. It was part of our culture to look to in, in answering questions that have some common footing in different places. One of the dilemmas that feminists face in the U.S. now who are part of the reproductive justice movement is that reproductive justice as a frame really tried to expand the conversation past abortion, really, uh, you know, uh, thought about that reproductive health as a spectrum over one's life course. And I think that has been something that um, a number of people have internalized. It still has been a movement that has been focused on abortion rights litigation. And the touchstone for that has been the due process clause, Roe and Casey. And with Roe and Casey gone, we're seeing so much interstate and interjurisdictional conflict. But it's also raised some profound questions for social movements about how to decenter litigation-based thinking as the way in which change occurs. And I think that that, that, that is a move in the right direction. <laughs> that's very, yeah, that's very interesting. And I think that is probably something that distinguishes the US and Ireland in that way. Yeah, the litigation-based strategies. So. Look, that mm. was fantastic. Um, everything we wanted. And so, I, uh, so thanks a million. So now we're going to hear from two scholars who worked actively on efforts at constitutional change in Chile, Luisa Slava and Amaya Alves-Marin. My name is Amaya Alves-Marin. I'm a law professor in Chile. I'm a mother of three and I work at the Constitutional Convention for the last year, between 2021 and 2022, drafting the Chilean constitution. My name is Luis Eslava. I'm a professor of international law at Kent Law School at the University of Kent in England. I had the fortune to serve as one of the um, advisors in Amaya's team during the drafting of the uh, constitution in Chile. And I worked there during the last part of the process uh, that was called the harmonization process, the moment in which the initial draft of the constitution was cleaned and uh, then eventually presented to the public. As an introduction for our listeners, and that just at, a, at the most kind of basic level possible, where did the impetus for a new constitution come from? If I ask Louise first, like when do you first remember being aware of the demand for a new constitution for Chile? The history of constitutional drafting in Chile goes back a long time ago. The current constitution in Chile is still the constitution that was passed by the Pinochet dictatorship, a constitution that was drafted by very dubious uh, means and it would enter into uh, action or it was, you know, became the constitution in Chile in 1980. And since that point, there has been efforts over the past decades to change the constitution. Some of those changes or proposals for change have been uh, successful, but never fully replaced the constitution. I think it became uh, way more serious towards the end of 2019 when a series of protests uh, initiated by the school uh, students, many of them women, basically brought the country to its knees and a political arrangement was passed uh, for a new constitution to be drafted. 
And that was the moment in which the call for a new constitution became not only a reality in Chile, but it became widely known internationally as a moment in which finally the constitution of Pinochet was going to be left behind and Chile was going to be able to embrace a future away from the legacy of the dictatorship, but also tackling several other problems that were very real and concrete the current moment in Chile, including um, you know, the long-term effects of neoliberalism and the issues around uh, economic inequality and importantly, the global climate crisis that is having a particularly serious impact in, in the country. You know, we have similar debates in Ireland and Northern Ireland about women's representation and about whether whether those kinds of provisions are enough. And so I wanted to ask about the significance of some of the other measures that were taken with the convention. So I saw there was a quota for disabled people. I think it was, was it 5% or something of the members had to be disabled people. And then, of course, there were provisions around indigenous membership. Um, and the president of the of the convention I saw was, was an indigenous woman. And so maybe, Luis, if I could ask you, you know, is is it really that mixture that makes made the difference? You know, was it the intersectionality, let's say, or maybe there's a better word, or the pluralism? Of the of of the of the collective that made the difference. Yes, that's that's a that's a that's a good one and a hard to answer. Um, yeah. I think the Chilean constitutional process capture more than capture crystallized a very particular moment in the twenty first century, and what it came out of it was a very kind of first bit of the 21st century constitution uh, or draft in the sense of it was addressing climate change, addressing questions of corruption and the importance of transparency that I mentioned before, but it was also a constitution that struggled in a good way with the collapse of politics as we knew it in the 20th century. So it was not a constitution constitutional drafting process organized around traditional political parties. It was an identity-based constitutional drafting process. And as a result of that, there was a richness in it that it was phenomenal. And that made conversations very rich, but very difficult Mm -hmm. to to organize and and to kind of have concrete results. Hence, the long working hours, because it was plenty of discussions and negotiations uh, that preceded every single word in the constitution. So you had a feminist, traditional uh, kind of uh, liberal feminist, but you also have a communist feminist, and then you have environmental feminists, you have environmental activists of a soft kind, you have hardcore environmental activists, yeah, you have a communist, socialist, centrist, far left, far right, and, and everything in between. So that that made a text an extremely rich and also touching every single aspect of a society in this point in time. So from issues of care, as I was mentioning before, to questions of indigenous representations, to questions about the environment, uh, to questions about the importance of information and sharing information today uh, in order to have, um, you know, as part of living a, a good life. I think then that made a, the constitution very interesting and very rich and very present, uh, very current and, and very um, visionary. 
What was interesting for me was the rule of the two-thirds. So just to go technical uh, a little bit here, there was a rule in order to take decisions within the uh, constitutional drafting process. Everything had to go through the two-thirds rule, meaning that there had to be an agreement at least by the two, uh, an endorsement by at least two-thirds of each commission and then the plenary in order for things to pass. Uh, and that made that all of this diversity that could be seen as exciting or hideous, depending on the political spectrum. But also it was really interesting to see how in the process a new Chile was in the making. So how feminists had to agree with indigenous agenda that were not necessarily aligned with traditional feminist values as you know, we know in the West. What I'm trying to say here, just to put it concretely, yeah, diversity is interesting, that enriched the text, but just was no unmediated uh, representation and identity. There was serious conversation taking place each day, and that was actually what made the, the, the final text uh, revolutionary on its own. Yeah, no, that's 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 fascinating. Maybe, Amaya, if I could kind of ask you the maybe the last question. You were engaged in this incredible constitutional experiment, and so I was I was wondering if you could give us an update on on what's happening now, and you know, kind of what um, whether the lesson from the twenty twenty two rejection of the draft is that we should never try and nothing better is possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, so I, I give you first the update. Um, they reached another agreement on December 12th. Um, we had had once in 2019 that set up this process, and now the political parties reach another agreement. I, it's a quite a different agreement. For some people, it's a, it's a step back in the sense of political participation and inclusion, because it's a very limited, it, it, it's different in the sense that it will set up what they call a constitutional council. There's keep on changing the name, so I guess people will think it's a different process or whatever. So now it's constitutional council, and it will be integrated all by 50 people. So it's much more limited in numbers. It resembles the Senate which was one of the institutions that we wanted to get rid of because it's very elitist and okay, but then now it, it looks like the Senate, so 50. But it, it will be a con, it, it, like there will be for that constitutional uh, council an expert commission. And that's also going back because I mean, an expert commission, expert is those who have been in the past always draft the constitution. It was never a political open process. Constitutional making was never part of uh, women's lives or indigenous people's lives or people that are not part of the elite. And now they want to set up an expert commission of 24 people that will work for three months. And also, I think the timing, the time are so kind of close and strict. And that was one of the main issues. We didn't have time to address, for example, culture or political issues and kind of talk and have feedback about the draft. So I think three months is really not much time. It makes me think they already drafted what they want. They already have it because, I mean, three months. And those 24 people will present a draft to the Constitutional Council, and then the Constitutional Council, among those boundaries and limits, will debate. And then there will be also another jurist commission of 12 people because they already said what they call are the constitutional principles, like the main values. And those values, there are 12. And those values, if you read them, they are already going back 
to what we had before. For example, they said there will be fundamental rights of indigenous peoples among the Chilean nation. And that's just by saying that among the Chilean nation, you're saying Chile is not a plurinational state. It was very relevant in our proposal. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think this agreement already have some constituent power being addressed because you're already like kind of putting the limits to this debate. So I don't like the new agreement. I don't, I think it's a bad, it's a step back. But then I want to be pragmatic as well and maybe think what we propose as a result of the Constitutional Convention was not approved for those who have political power in Chile. That's that's the thing. And this, I really, it was a, conver a conversation among equals. It was a constituent power that has an openness and a democratic uh, standard that we never encountered before. It was inclusive. It had indigenous people. It was paritarian. But that is not what Chile is constructing, the way in which it is constructed and the way in which decisions are being made. So I really don't know exactly how to bridge that gap because we were not able to bridge that gap. We didn't have the time to bridge that gap. We didn't have the money to do the campaign. That's the thing. I mean, you know, if, if you see the amounts of money that went to the rejection campaign, it was something like 90-10. So 10 for approval, 90 for rejection. And then who were giving that money for rejection were not the political parties, were not the right-wing parties. I mean, we know this because it is public. I mean, what is public? I'm just telling you what is public. Imagine what is not public. It, it, what is public, it was corporations. It were like the public sector, the, the private sector that is really happy about our new liberal frame. So then I come to your second question. It is really possible to change the rules of the game with, with a conversation among equals. And I'm not sure about that. Thank you so much, guys. Marie, that was a really fascinating account from Luis and Amaya. What did you find most inspiring from it all? I think um, the reason we had been so keen to talk to people who were involved in the Chilean constitutional um, experiment was precisely because it was an experiment, right? Nothing quite like this has ever been done before. The design of the Chilean constitutional drafting process is really inspiring. In particular, the great efforts that they went through to make sure that it was a, a truly representative group um, coming up with these ideas um, to engage the public to the greatest extent possible. And I think we were also really fascinated by the fact that the demand from constitutional change had very clear feminist origins, you know. So this constitutional assembly met in 2021, but you can trace its origins back to street protests. Um, and in particular to a very well-organized feminist movement who in 2019 were out on the streets protesting for, let's say, you know, better protections in respect of violence against women. So I think what's so inspiring about it is that combination of sort of constitutionalist legal experiment and just political, I don't know, political passion maybe. And so I suppose it's kind of quite different from the kind of conversation you were having with Rachel, right? Because she's not talking about getting to invent anything. She's, 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 discussing in a very different context. So what did you find still inspiring about that conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a cautionary tale, really. But um, what I, you know, continue to find inspiring and what Rachel really brought out is just how incredibly pragmatic and practical people are being in their responses. You know, it's not about sort of licking wounds and bemoaning what's happened to the constitutional court. Instead, it's about, you know, it's immediately about looking for alternative fora, right, alternative institutions where I'm there can still be progress. And, and interestingly, some of those are about constitutions, they're about state constitutions. Um, but she also, of course, concludes that actually maybe maybe looking alternatively away from litigation, constitutional litigation strategies might be the way forward. So I think that ability to just kind of be so kind of practical and pragmatic um, mm. to look for a way forward, even in these fairly dire circumstances, um, is absolutely inspiring. I think maybe when we first started batting around the idea of talking to people in Chile and in the United States, maybe we thought we were going to have two very different kind of conversations, right? So we were really hoping, as lots of people were, that the Chilean draft constitution would pass, that it would be adopted by the people in a referendum, and it would be your sort of first example of a genuinely feminist constitution. And then when we were first having these conversations in 2021, which seems like a long time ago now, you know, the threat to Roe v. Wade was very clearly on the horizon. And I think maybe we thought we would have one hopeful conversation and one, well, hopefully another hopeful conversation, but it seemed more likely it would be a, a distressing uh, conversation. But of course, by the time we talked to everybody, the Chilean constitution had been rejected. And so maybe there were more, more commonalities in the conversations than we had anticipated, that both were about feminist activists having to pick themselves up and redesign and rethink in the context of very constrained institutional circumstances, you know. And so maybe, yeah, people's creativity and their stick atedness and their willingness to de to defend or reinsert a feminist vision is is really kind of inspiring. But if we can kind of dwell in the sort of place of legal feminist depression for a moment, like what was the most frustrating thing, do you think, about your conversation with Rachel? It was very stark to me when she said, you know, essentially, it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Mm. The co constitutional law in the US is what the Supreme Court now says it is. Yeah. And that was really very stark. You know, and the idea that actually, irrespective of what you may be able to include in the written text, that in fact, there are just sort of vested in institutional interests that continue to continue to kind of assert their power and their interpretation and um, through in this case judicial institutions through through courts um, and that was incredibly stark you know and she sort of said look we, we could have all the debates we want around the relationship between equality and access to abortion but mm. at the moment the constitutional court isn't going to be receptive to that yeah there was a nice moment in your in your conversation or one that kind of struck me where she kind of talks about how the judges are describing an america almost that doesn't exist Right. So where women have all of these opportunities to participate in the political process and women have all of these options for managing unwanted pregnancy, all of which are inherently great and beautifully resourced and very dignified. Right. And she kind of it really struck me that she was hammering home that judicial power, the power of the Supreme Court in the US is at the moment is such that judges can make decisions on the basis almost of a fiction. Right. And we were saying like that's so relevant to our project right because you know one of the criticisms of a feminist utopian project is well it's just imaginary it's not a real constitution but the american example really shows and it's so yeah it's such an important lesson i think um all constitutions are based on an imaginary 
you know, and it's just, it's like Ursula Le Guin says, and I think maybe we mentioned this one in the previous podcast, we're all living in somebody's utopia. It's just at the moment we're living in God, like, yeah, we're living in um, Brett Kavanaugh's utopia <laughs> instead, of, instead of in Rachel's, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of um, black, black kind of humor is, is obviously a really important survival, uh, survival tactic. What else, I suppose? What I mean, what 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 else is kind of frustrating, or what else would we need to be mindful of for for the project? Yeah, I mean, I think she she does when she talks about what a feminist constitution would look like to her, and indeed, actually, even in her discussion of Dobbs, I mean, what comes out so clearly is you know the importance of material resources mm-hmm. um, to you know to, to any kind of feminist future, really, and and that actually without questions of economic distribution, you know, the legal text isn't terribly meaningful, right? Yeah, um, and, and and obviously operating from the US, that's even more pronounced, right? So that's of, of course important, I think, to bear in mind as we sort of take the project forward. Uh, not that I think we're likely to forget it, but in a, in a context, yeah, in the US, where access to abortion now is determined not so much by legalities but by resources, which 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 is of course familiar to us here. <laughs> Certainly, and it came up in the Chilean example as well, right? Because when we were when we were discussing later on, um, obviously the the constitution as drafted was rejected, and we were kind of asking, well, why? And one of the reasons was just that the no side um, was so well funded by comparison, and that's an experience we've had certainly in Ireland before. But that economic interests were were so much to the to to the fore of of, of that campaign, and that that material resources determine not just the implementation of rights, but who gets to participate in the process of identifying them. That's certainly something I think we were conscious of before and was driven home by this conversation. I thought, though, you know, um, something else that I found, like staying on the theme of what's depressing or was um, uh, in the conversation with Amaya and Luis. And one thing that came out very strongly with Amaya was she said um, it surprised her how difficult it was for people to imagine a new constitutional order. So Chile is of interest to people because it's the birthplace of neoliberalism, you know, that kind of political system that places almost exclusive responsibility on the individual for their um, survival and well-being. And she said she was struck by almost how living under that order, even post Pinochet and so on, living under that order had shaped people's expectations of what was possible to a profound extent, and then maybe she wasn't fully prepared for that. And I wonder, do you think a feminist constitutions project has tools or mechanisms to address that kind of internalization of those kinds of expectations? Yeah, that resonated really powerfully with me, I have to say. I mean, even in just our engagements with other people who are involved maybe in more formal or official discussions about this constitutional question and, and yeah. Northern Ireland and Ireland. And their very clear sense that, you know, they're doing the real constitutional change discussion and we're doing this sort of decorative frill uh, constitutional change discussion. And I mean, of course, and of course we know this, but, you know, the extent to which they get to sort of marginalise this question and establish themselves as a centre and us as the periphery. Yeah, I mean, it's very powerful. I mean, it's very much, you know, guided our, our whole set of discussions here. But I would hope that, so my hope is that if folks like that end up listening to this podcast, maybe it might invite a bit of reflection on, you know, just actually it, it is not it is not neutral to say that FemCon is a marginal project. Actually, that's an expression of power. Yeah, it made me wonder as well about some of the discussions we had in one of the other podcasts with Jesse Jones, who's one of like the the artists we've been working with on the project, and where she um, stressed the importance of practicing things being otherwise, 
or acting as if um, thing, things could be otherwise as a way of almost getting used to thinking about living or thinking about yourself as potentially living one day in a different kind of constitutional order. So really paying attention to and interrogating um, our various kind of habits of thought. Um, because I think what happened in Chile was a proposal for, you know, it would have been a transformative change at all levels of, of society. Um, and maybe, you know, and we, you know, we probably don't have time to go into it, but not just in terms of the various rights that were identified in the text of the constitution, but um, tran significant transformations in terms of the distribution of power within society across a variety of different representative institutions. You know, if you think about the, the importance of slow lawmaking, that there is a significant cultural change, a significant reorientation that needs to happen before you can be confident that people will be able to put themselves behind a radical constitutional change. So I think that's a really important lesson uh, for our project too. As we move forward into sort of future stages of the project, I'm really glad that we got to have those conversations because they gave us an opportunity to reflect on that boundary between what is utopian, what we are allowed to think about and the practical constraints of lawmaking in the real world and the relationship between the two of them. And I think that while there were some sobering lessons in those conversations, there is also a set of important resources for an ethic for this project. And I think the thing that I'm going to be carrying with me into the future is that commitment to sticking at it, to keeping trying, to being realistic without losing that commitment to genuinely transformative constitutional scholarship and activism. Thanks, Marit. I think that's a nice note to wrap on. I know what I took away from this is life is long and that these constitutional struggles, they take a long time. And actually, there's not really an end point. And, and it tied nicely back, I think, to our first episode where we talked to Alva Smith and Joanna McMinn about really a lifetime of work and advocacy that they've been doing to improve women's position in the constitution in Ireland and Northern Ireland. FanCon was produced by Orla Higgins, with sound engineering by Andy Gaffney. The series was funded by Durham University and produced in conjunction with Birmingham University and Queen's University Belfast. The team at FemCon would like to thank our great contributors and all the feminists who have inspired us along the way. Thanks for listening.